0: Mrs. Thomas, it's stage three metastasis. Mrs. Thomas, I'm not married and my mom's not there. And this guy just took my uterus, my fallopian tubes, and my ovaries out of my vagina. I think we can be on a first name basis.
1: Hey there, and welcome to Grit, True Stories That Matter, a weekly podcast on the art and craft of the personal narrative story. Each week, my partner Kurt and I will tackle one question and answer it as best we can to help you craft and tell better, more engaging, more relatable, and more memorable stories, true stories, personal stories, grit stories. Our feature storyteller this week is Gail Thomas, Gail lives up in New York, and she's got a seven-minute story. And when Gail's done, Kurt and I will tackle this week's question, do we really need to relive our stories? Stick around after Kurt and I are finished. Gail's got the final word. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Please, if you like this podcast, let other people know about it. You can follow us on social media at True Stories That Matter and... If you've got some ideas, some thoughts, a pitch, you can email us, hello at storygrit.com. Thanks again. Let's dive in.
0: It's August 2009. It's a bright, sunny morning in Brooklyn. I walk down the steps of my apartment to catch a cab. Normally, I would ride my bike, but I can barely walk. It's a few days after my hysterectomy, and it's time for my post-op appointment. This is when my young, good-looking doctor is going to shake my hand and tell me, congratulations, we got all the cancer. I get to his office. It's it's small, and he's, he's wearing a button-down shirt and khakis. He looks more like a teacher's assistant than a gynecological oncologist. He doesn't shake my hand. He... Shuts the door, motions for me to sit, and begins pacing behind his desk. I wish he would just sit still. Mrs. Thomas, he begins. It's serious. The cancer has spread from your uterus to your ovaries. I don't know if we got it all. I don't want to give you false hope. False hope? (laughs) I'm like, that's an oxymoron. Hope is not false. He continues. I don't say anything. Mrs. Thomas. It's stage three metastasis. If you don't do exactly what I say, you have a 50-50 chance of being alive in five years. Mrs. Thomas, I'm not married and my mom's not there. And this guy just took my uterus, my fallopian tubes and my ovaries out of my vagina. I think we can be on a first name basis. He continues with all these statistics and all these numbers. He tells me that I have to start radiation immediately, six weeks, five days a week, followed by by six cycles of chemotherapy. He calls it protocol. It sounds like a threat. I finally say I'd like a second opinion, and he says, okay, as long as you start treatment first. That's not how second opinions work. I mean, I'm not a doctor, but I've done some research and research says that you should actually not start treatment immediately after surgery. Again, I'm not a doctor, but I'm a lawyer and I like research even though I hate confrontation. And research also says what's protocol one year can be over treatment the next. I have other reasons to be cautious about this guy. I have a fever that is so Hi, I can't even sleep at night. And there's so much drainage coming out of my body that when I walk my dog at night, I still go through my adult diapers. I can't even make it half a block. And I woke, up, I woke up during surgery. I could hear him yell at somebody. She's not supposed to be that bloated. And I fell back down. I never told him that, but I asked him about side effects, which he does not want to talk about. So I just walk out of there in a daze. I I walk through this waiting room, which has all this dingy furniture, which I never noticed before. I'm thinking, did I just pick this guy because he's good looking? I've made that mistake before. But I don't have time to cry. I have to give myself a medical degree overnight. My family is asking me all these questions about what they're supposed to do. I don't know. I've never had cancer before. So Dr. Google tells me about side effects. They include neuropathy, lymphedema, nausea, uncontrollable flapping eye movements. That's from the nausea medication. I'm a crazy mad Googler by night, but I try to be a good patient by day. So I go to the radiation simulation appointment and I lay down on that cold steel table while the nurses and the technicians measure my pelvis for this mold that's gonna put radiation to my body 30 times. And they give me these little tattoos in a triangular shape, zit, 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 just to just target the radiation and make it sure it goes to the same place 30 times. It doesn't feel right, but I tell myself, well, this is the price of living. And then I go into the next room and I meet the radiation oncologist. He stands in the doorway for a few minutes and he looks at me and he looks at my chart and then he looks at me and he looks at my chart like he's trying to decide between the two of us. And then he sits down in a chair about six feet away from me and I feel like he's holding my hand. He's got these droopy eyebrows and he says, you know, I've been looking at your chart and there's a chance there's a chance that you don't have metastasis at all. You don't have advanced cancer. You have two primary cancers, both early stage. And if that's the case, you don't need any treatment, no treatment at all. (laughs) I guess that's why you need a medical degree. Two cancers is actually good news. And this is real hope. This is not false. I go home and I am energized. I mean, research is fun. I've got a purpose now. I'm asking everybody. My yoga teacher tells me that I should eat raw onion every day. I won't have friends, but I won't keep cancer. My Dominican handyman stops by with an alvira plant. And my brother is like Rambo. He's like, do it all,
1: do doodle, doodle.
0: Finally, after talking to all these doctors and getting all these pathology reports, I get one. That agrees with the oncologist that says, I have two primary cancers and there's no treatment necessary. So I call up my bully, good looking doctor. And I say, you know, huh, how about this? He says, Mrs. Thomas, your life is in danger. You must start treatment immediately. And then he goes on vacation oh, okay. and I break up with yeah. him. By this time I have found Dr. C a kind, tall, skinny doctor with white fuzzy hair who looks at me with kind eyes and, and tells me, you know, Gail, it's your choice. It's up to you. I'll support your decision and we'll do the research together. And he doesn't laugh at me when I ask him what's the least amount of treatment I can do without seeming suicidal. That was 10 years ago. <laughs> I didn't do any radiation. I did three cycles of chemo. I still have those little tattoos as a reminder that I can stand up for myself. I haven't had cancer since then. And on my last visit with Dr. C, I told him that I was starting to tell this story to people. And as he walked out the door, he turned and he looked back at me and he said, I don't usually tell my patients this. But I had cancer, too, and if I hadn't gotten a second opinion, I wouldn't be alive today. So I guess he stood up for himself, too.
1: Our feature storyteller, Gail Thomas. Thank you, Gail. Next up, Kurt and I tackle this week's question. Do we really need to relive our stories? And when Kurt and I are done, Gail has the final word. You hear that story versus someone, a friend, saying, Kurt, you should really get a second opinion, which is gonna be more powerful. You really need a second opinion, it's really important, versus that story. I mean, because I think about why do we tell stories, and there's probably a lot of reasons. For me, if I hear that, I am more likely to be like, yeah, man, I, I, I should get a second opinion.
2: A lot of these stories that we hear, they can be like primers for living, primers for life. Check it out, like Gail's telling us this story She's been somewhere that we have not. She's had a doctor telling her, you have a 50% chance of being dead in five years if you don't listen to every word I say. All right, Sean, I think most people, or let's say, I know some people are gonna hear that and they're gonna be very scared, very frightened by that for good reason. And they're gonna say, I think radiation is my doctor said. I'm going to I need to do radiation to be around. Gail starts down that road then she she picks her head up and she said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa I'm going to get a second opinion. Great call." Okay? And she continues to tell a story about her second opinion how it pays off. At the end of the story, she even has a new doctor friend who lets her know, "Hey, I don't usually tell my patients that this, but um I've had cancer too and If I didn't get a second opinion, I wouldn't be around talking to you right now. Hearing Gail's like really compelling story about getting a second opinion is going to stay with me. It's sort of like back uh, in, I guess, paleolithic times, you know, when when our ancestors are foraging for dinner and they always wanted to have like that (laughs) that person who would remember certain things. The one who would say, no, 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 don't don't pick that mushroom. That's not going to be good for us. No, I remember that that killed uh that killed my cousin, Sal. That's what storytellers do. They're they're great rememberers. And when a a storyteller with the talent of of Gail Thomas puts together a story of the kind of importance of this medical situation, this medical tale, I guess, and you hear it, the chances are, you know, maybe you're gonna respond. If you get into a situation like this, you may remember Gail Thomas, I hope to.
1: I mean, look, we tell stories for all sorts of reasons, and entertainment is part of it. Hey, if you want to write a story like this and tell a story like this, there's there's other things going on, and you can make it I mean, like look, I'll leave it I'll leave it at that. I'll just say I'm more likely to get a second opinion after hearing this than hearing somebody just tell me what to do. And I am reminded, truly, I am reminded, hey, you know, I'm not a doctor, but don't be a dick. <laughs>
2: Right. I want to be, a, <laughs> I would like to be your patient advocate sometime. Just hear you say that to some doctor in North Carolina someday. You mentioned the word entertainment, and it reminds me that I actually was looking through some stuff thinking about Gail's story. And you know the name Robert McKee? He like taught at USC Film School, and I think he has a, a lot of experience in, in film. But I do know as a teacher of narrative form, he's very well known and he started to do these workshops. Uh, and then he put together this book called Story, which I have a copy of.
1: He didn't work that hard for the for the title, I'll tell you that.
2: No, he, he's like, let's keep it one. Uh, one. Story. <laughs> Good enough. Done. By God. By Buy it. Buy it. Good
1: read job. it. It'll change your life. Story.
2: <laughs> Check out this quote I heard him say in an interview. It relates to what you said about why people go to story. Is it entertainment or what? He says, uh, I never believe that people simply go to stories to escape. I think they go to a story to explore a world that they didn't know. Mm. That's why when you see something that's a catalog of cliches, you don't escape. You get pissed off. So, Sean, this is so you, because, I mean, you don't like the platitudes. You don't like the cliches. And you're, you're saying, like, who does? She's not telling you what to do. She's telling you this is what happened. This is what I did. Yeah. Without any sanctimony or any righteousness like that, she just, this is my story. I'm a storyteller.
1: Yeah, for me, it's far more powerful. I assume other people are like that. I don't know. Maybe you like the speech. It's just not my thing. And if it were, I'd probably be having a podcast about speaking and not storytelling. I'm sharing with you my experience, what my how it changed me. And that's it. You take it however you want to take it.
2: It's not riddled with cliches. She gives right. her gives you her true experience, and, and you've got pre- fairly practice ears, right? And so does the audience. Like we know she's she's for real. I've heard you talk about some of these speeches. These and when we talk about speeches, we're talking about like people who actually make a living with what do you call it, Sean, on the speaking cir- circuit?
1: I suppose yeah. There's a circuit or circuits.
2: I'm sure there are plenty of great speakers, yeah,
1: but sure. some
2: fall prey to this sort of easy out, and they don't they kind of say things like we've we've mentioned before, like, and then I realized as if it was like they got struck by the thunderbolt of inspiration. and we all know that's really not how it goes most times. Usually it's a slow undertaking. okay, it's a process, like Gail describes in her story, so. Back to your point, Sean, yeah, I'll take a story like Gail's over um, some sort of cheap out in, in a throwaway speech. What is it that, that storytellers are doing? I, I want your help with this, Sean, because I'm, I'm sitting here on Zoom with a class last night mm-hmm. and I'm trying to tell them there's a difference between saying, you know, what happened and actually fashioning it, what happened into a story. Right. And what storytellers do, and what they're learning, these people in my class, it's a great class, uh, these people, that what they're learning to do is to sort of go back to what happened, but relive it. Yep. It sounds so simple. Even today, when I'm putting a story together, I notice I have to remind myself no, Kurt, be there. Yeah. For instance, I tell a story in episode three of this podcast where I'm looking at my brother at one point and he's not being friendly enough (laughs) enough with my friends. And I'm I'm looking at him. I'm going, dude, you're not trying hard enough. When I'm telling that story all these years later, I'm really feeling that disappointment. In other words, I'm reliving that moment in time when I'm looking at my brother and going, you're not trying hard enough. I'm not saying, oh, Sean. Uh, and then my brother's sitting there and I'm like, what's up with him? It's different.
1: I don't actually think it's that hard. I just don't think we do it.
2: It's a checklist item, right?
1: One thing that Gail does in her story is she, we are in her story and she is reliving her story into the last 30 seconds. The entire story is Gail reliving those experiences. She's making choices because the story itself took place over some weeks, right? We don't have weeks with her. We have seven minutes with her. She's in the story, reliving it, not exactly. I assume when she's telling the story, she's not in the exact same emotional state as she was when she was on the table getting checked. She's reliving it or re-experiencing it to some degree all the way up until the end. And she's making a choice at the very end. That was 10 years ago. That's the first time we're not reliving it with her. Most yeah. people don't do that in a the story. They don't do it. They go out, they go in, they never relive it. They're telling it from this distant place. They're removed. It's all in the past, which it is, but well, listen to this story. It's different it Has a different texture. You're in it. You're in it.
2: And I like your, the point you made a few minutes ago about it is so easy. I'm sorry, but it's easy. But it's <laughs> it's not something that that we do because you know, when you run into a friend downtown and you start getting deeply into a story, I don't think we come along thinking that's what you do socially these days. You don't you don't get deeply into something. Yeah. One thing I want to point out with Gail, she is telling a really intense story. Notice the way that she starts this story. So Gail has this sort of, this easygoing. Uh, sort of dialect at the beginning of this uh, story. She's going down some stairs. Then she also wants you to know, you know, this is where I am. I just had the serious surgery and I'm going to go see my doctor. And this is the visit when he shakes my hand and he says, we got the cancer. She knows that's not the case, but she's telling you, you know, she's allowing you into the story. She's not hitting you over the head with a hammer right from the get-go. She's saying, no, yeah, I, I said the word hysterectomy. That that usually means a tough for people who need them, but I'm going to my doctor and I think everything's going to be okay. She lets you in. I like that.
1: What do you mean she lets you in?
2: You know, you're tuning into Gail's story and you don't know Gail and all of a sudden Gail's talking and she wants to tell you about something intense. And so she made a choice. This is the style of story that Gail chooses to tell. There's going to be plenty of really intense information to follow. It's going to start happening soon enough within minute one. She doesn't dilly dally, but she's telling you, she's in an apartment in Brooklyn. She's going down the stairs. She tells you right away, she, she's she got to take a cab. She can't ride her bike because she's hurting. Yeah. But you know what? She's also going back 10 years and remembering her frame of mind, state of mind is, well, you know what? I'm going to hear this from the doctor. And this is my own inference because we all somewhere in our minds want to believe that life is fair. And having a hysterectomy, Gail has suffered enough.
1: She balances things well. Part of it's her delivery. She's not over emoting We've heard people over emote It doesn't work. It takes you out of the story. She's not sharing it flat 10 years later. I'm just telling you in the mood or state I'm in in this moment, as I tell it, go back and listen to the very beginning of the story. She's taking you right into that hot August day and... You feel it a little bit. let me tell you one other thing I really like that she does that is really easy to overlook in story crafting and or telling that is massive when she's going into the doctor's office, so ten years later, she knows that doctor was kind of an asshole. My yes. words, when she's reliving her story with us, she doesn't say that because she doesn't feel that way yet right. We don't get to know it until later, and a lot of people, including myself, fall sort of pray to or victim to I know this about this person so that's what I'm going to tell you about but that's not actually how the story happened in real life that's not actually how things happen when she started it she walked in and this is how she was feeling she remembers she accessed it she shares it with us yeah I had these hopes this guy was this way and he was going to do this thing and then it starts to change so that was a long way of saying take us back to the moments and don't I don't know I'll stop there no,
2: it, that wasn't a long way. I I get your point perfectly. Sometimes people just getting into storytelling will be like, "What's the difference between telling a story at the dinner table or at the bar and doing this stuff?" You just put your finger on. And I think my answer is going to be p- pretty much what you just said, because so many times at the Thanksgiving dinner table, uh, when I get if I get prompted to tell a story, I might say if it's a story about say Adam, made up name, right? And I'm, and I want. I'm like, yeah. And you can see in my face how I feel about Adam. Adam is the type of guy who's, you know. And I might tell you some characteristics about Adam. You know, he's selfish, or he's not serious, or he's uh, whatever. And but you're gonna know a lot about Adam before I even get started. I don't even let you draw your own conclusion. Gail Thomas in the story is like, no, I'm just gonna put it out there. I'm going to have some things to say, but I'm going to let the story, I'm going to let the listener in and I'm going to let them go on this, on this trip with me.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: That's a major difference. It's it's more premeditated in a good way.
1: When a story is crafted like this, it's actually closer to what really happened. When we summarize our lives, it's nothing like what happened. I met this doctor, this doctor did this. We had a falling out because he didn't really do this. And then I went here and then this happened. And then I found somebody I liked, but that's nothing like it happened. Her story is closer to what actually happens. So when we re-experience or relive or come closer to that, one of the reasons it's satisfying is it's actually closer to what happens.
2: What you said before we started recording, we were talking about why we like stories yet again. And you mentioned that, you know, you really love stories. And I agreed. And it's because there are these moments when people actually go into a subject, go into an experience. They delve into more depth.
1: Yeah.
2: Her bully, good-looking doctor said, no, you need uh, radiation treatment. She's like, shit. And she's doing Dr. Google at night, but she's a good patient during the day. So she actually goes to radiation simulation. You know, I heard this story maybe three or four times and I never looked up radiation simulation until this morning. I Googled it and I saw it. Well, it means exactly what it sounds like. You go and they sort of uh, mark up where they take the mold of you and how they're going to treat you, as Gail says. So she's on this cold metal table. And in that moment, she gives us this, she's feeling awful about having to be here, but she says, well, this is the price of being alive. So she's a huge readjustment of her expectations from life. If that's what she's saying, Mm -hmm. she's in survival mode. And um, there's no summary there. She's just telling you what, what the thought was, but check it out. Like she gets up off that table and she goes into another room and she uh, meets up with a brand new person, a brand new character in the story. And it's, Another doctor. She says he's standing in the doorway holding her chart. And when we encounter him, we don't encounter him as anything but sort of another sort of clinical present. And he's looking at her chart and he's looking at her, looking at her chart, looking at her, to quote Gail, as if he's trying to choose between the two of us. Mm -hmm. So my frame of mind is like, oh, here we go, more drudgery. Well, fairly soon enough we we hear actually he he has some good news for her right you've used this word i love it uh, this word discovery like when a storyteller allows right. you to discover and that's what she is allowing us to do and it's a it's a really satisfying thing that happens through listening to stories thank you gail
1: i'll just respond quickly with we use these different words and they do overlap and it could get confusing with respect to surprise and discovery and Reliving. Look, I I like that one example you choose. And I'm gonna use that as my only example as well to say, she took us into this moment. He looks at the chart, he looks at me, he looks at the chart, he looks at me. She's reliving the moment. Let's leave it at that. She's reliving the moment. She waits to give us the next piece of information. She doesn't rush it. She does a really good job there. And she does it throughout her story. The most of her story is simply that kind of thing. This thing is happening. This is how I'm feeling, and this is why it matters.
2: Another thing to point out about a scene like this is what a storyteller is able to do, even with the tone of their voice. In her voice, you can hear, we're getting more of this ordeal until that changes because of another plot point that causes her to have real hope, not false hope, but real hope. And so she does that not with words, but with the tone of her voice. I want to point out one thing about my experience of, of hearing the story. And it's like at the beginning, she says, it's August, 2009. It's a warm, you know, August day. Okay. Got it. Eases me into the story. Seven minutes later, six and a half minutes later, I forget that we're in 2009 because I'm so engrossed and I'm in the present tense with the story. And if you had asked me before she wraps the story up, Kurt, when is this happening? I'd be like, uh, I wouldn't come up with 2009. Cause I remember the first time I heard it and she says that was 10 years ago. And I was like shocked into aware. Oh, this is a decade in Gail's past. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to get to an end of a story and to, to really kind of size it up and, and reflect on a little bit. Look, the storyteller spent a lot of time putting this stuff together. Imagine all the stuff that's on the cutting room floor. This right. is a huge experience in this person's life. She's worked hard to shape it. Okay. So Sean, like get into minute seven. Like what's this to you? What's this story about after all those details? What what do you make of this story?
1: She clearly states what it's, it's about within the story about get a second opinion, correct? Get a second opinion. She said, but Kurt, it. I'm also thinking it's about don't be a fucking dick. <laughs> I feel like you have
2: to get that in in every episode. You just kind work. of, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: because if we're, t- I guess it does come up a lot. Uh, <laughs> I'm teasing. There's a part of me that always will go towards, hey, man, if that guy had listened or been more empathetic. But anyway,
2: not enough doctors probably get that response they are authorities in our, in our culture. They don't get questioned enough. That's what makes this story interesting to me. I totally agree. She And she pretty much spells it out. She doesn't say, you should get a second opinion. She's like, I got a second opinion. And then by the way, there's this Dr. C, this fuzzy white haired man who's tall and kindly. And he wasn't going to tell me. He turns around at the end of the story and he says, you know, I had cancer too. And I got a second opinion. And if I didn't, I probably wouldn't be standing here today. I mean, wow.
1: Hey, kid, catch.
2: And the mean Joe Green just throws his game shirt. You know, Gail just threw us the game shirt right there. I hope that uh, comes across okay, Gail. (laughs) We love your story.
1: I will say one other thing. Well, A lived experience, a shared experience goes a long way to empathy or understanding. Yeah. So, the doctor and Gail, it makes sense in this story. Like, yeah, uh, he's been through that, and he gets it.
2: Yes.
0: When did I realize that I had enough control over the material to tell the story? Um... <laughs> Gosh, you know, I waited five years after I got out of cancer treatment to tell any of the four, I sort of have a a set of four cancer time period stories. This particular story I decided to tell because I had won a moth slam with another story that was about a heartbreak that took place during that time period, which was actually the hardest story to tell because it was a loss and it was a relationship. This one was, is more of my standing up for myself story. So it it was easier from a standpoint of emotion, but harder from a standpoint of crafting because it's a lot of medical stuff. So, um, but I had won the Moth Slam and then they, for the Grand Slam, they give you a theme and the theme was now or never. So, as soon as I heard the title, I thought, okay, now I'm going to have to talk about the treatment story, about the decisions I made with that, because it did feel like a now or never decision. It had to be made. So, the challenge was to not go into too much medical detail, but to give people enough so that they would understand what the emotional journey connected to that was. And it was empowering. I enjoyed sharing it. I went first that night, and then I continued to work on the story over time to get it where you have it today. Thank you.